Black lives matter, black lives matter to me. Your life matters, my life matters, black lives matter to me. Freedom song, freedom song, I got to sing my freedom song. I love my people, oh, I love us so. I got my freedom and I won't let go because black lives matter, black lives matter, black lives matter to me. Your life matters, my life matters, black lives matter to me. Freedom song, freedom song, I got to sing my freedom song. I love my people, oh, I love us so. I got my freedom and I won't let go because black lives matter, black lives matter, black lives matter to me. Your life matters, my life matters, black lives matter to me. All right, welcome to episode 23 of the Ferguson Response Network podcast. I'm your host, Leslie Mack, and I'm joined, as always, by my wonderful co-host, Ricky L. Hines II. What's going on, Ricky? Nothing. Good to be back. Yes, be it back. is. We've been on a, a un, un, well unavoidable hiatus, lamentably. I moved halfway across the country, and then we had M for BL, and so there was a lot of stuff going on. But we're back. And we're we're gonna have a great show tonight. We are joined. Um, we have a guest on the show, and we have absurdist words with us. I'm really excited. And how are you doing tonight? I am feeling wonderful. Thank you very much, Leslie. Awesome, awesome. Uh, well, if this is your first time joining us, or if you've just discovered us by happenstance, you can find the show on iTunes or Stitcher Radio. Just search Ferguson Response Network. Um, you can also find us on our website, fergusonresponse.org. And you can also um, find us on the AUA um, Americans United Again app. And you can find that in uh, Google Play or on any Android device. Hopefully I said that correctly, Ricky. That, yeah, that's correct. All right. Awesome. Huzzah. If you're unfamiliar with Ricky, he is a Los Angeles native, U.S. Navy veteran, avid Googler, blogger, founder of the Americans United Again movement. He hosts two other podcasts, the Americans United Again podcast, and with the lovely Sherelle, he co-hosts the AUA Hope podcast, which is amazing. And our other guest tonight um, is an information architect in Philly. Um, he worked in the New York City juvenile court system as a youth advocate and helped lead reform of juvenile arrest procedure in New York City and was a professor of public administration at John Jay College of Criminal Justice. And you can find him on Twitter or Tumblr at Absurdist Words, where he has a large activist voice. And we're very happy to have you here on the show tonight. Thank you so much. Yeah. So yeah, thank uh, you for joining us. Yeah, really, really cool. So I know we, we're going to get into um, the large topic for tonight is going to be tone policing, which um, I, you know, Ricky and I were kind of deciding what we wanted to do the show about and a lot of different stuff was going on. And when I mentioned tone policing, it kind of was this overarching, uh, you know, great umbrella that pulled a lot of things that have been on both of our minds and kind of out in the um, atmosphere over the last couple of weeks. So I think it's going to be a great discussion and we're going to get into some specifics and also just our thoughts on what's been going on. But before we do that, uh, we had a couple of news items I wanted to just mention. One was uh, the We Are Diet um, uh, hunger strike that's been going on in Chicago um, for the past, I think it's 14 days now, uh, sorry, 17 days that they've been um, uh, striking there in order to uh, open up uh high school that's been closed in Chicago. I don't know if you guys know, but they've closed over 200 schools in Chicago over the last five years. It's really been devastating to a lot of um, 
communities, obviously, because now you're talking about taking away educational opportunities in within neighborhoods themselves. Uh, and uh, this school, uh, the Walter H. Diet High School, uh, closed in June. Um, and it was the closest high school for the Bronzeville neighborhood of Chicago South Side. And so um, we have... Uh, 12 protesters who've been on a strike, a hunger strike for 17 days. They haven't had any solid food since August 17th. Uh, They're drinking water and juice, um, and they're on the strike to bring attention to this issue and to force uh, Mayor Rahm uh, Manuel to uh, step up and reopen the school. Um, what are you guys' thoughts on just this approach of this hunger strike and kind of what's been going on? I mean, for me, it's been really disturbing by the lack of media coverage of this, you know, um, I would say, you know, more traditional form of protest and such a personal one in this in this arena and it's been kind of crazy to just see zero attention being paid to it uh on the national level so what are your guys thoughts um it seems to me i mean it's interesting because um it it seemed that the the sensationalism of that surrounds the black lives matter protests um has sort of raised the bar for uh what gets attention um you know i remember that you know when you know a lot of times when we had hunger strikes in the past, uh, some notable ones by like Al, Al Sharpton over Guantanamo or et cetera, um, you know, a lot of those, like the, the attention was brought, you know, sort of both by the tactic, um, but also by the person who was actually doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, but at this point, you know, we're looking and we're seeing that, you know, some of the, the same uh, peaceful, uh, nonviolent protests, uh, sort of uh, that sort of resistance that, you know, everybody seems to be clamoring for when you discuss uh, Black Lives Matter, um, it's actually here and it's actually being, uh, being used. And as you're, you know, as you're saying, it doesn't actually uh, grab the attention in the same way. For sure. Ricky, have you been hearing about this at all or what are your thoughts on it? Um, I've, heard, I've heard bits about it. And I, I mean, it, it doesn't surprise me that there isn't any media coverage, um, but it's still disheartening, to be mm-hmm. quite honest. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, you know, again, especially in Chicago, where you have a Democratic mayor who has who the community who communities in Chicago, poor communities have reached out and said, hey, cool. You want to fix this problem? You want to fix you want to you want to fix our neighborhoods? Here's the tools that we need and come out and listen to us and we'll tell you exactly what we need to fix the shit. Right. And he ignores them. Mm-hmm. So, you know. It's it goes to show that these like institutions have no no um sword I'm looking for here. They have no interest in changing the system because the system benefits them, mm. and they have they have every intention or every incentive to cement that system. And the way that you cement that system is you create ghettos. You let them thrive. You you know you don't. The, the ghetto is a it is nothing but policy. Is it, it you know it's nothing but a reaction to policy. That's all it is. It's a in any in I mean in the in the purest form. So you know again it doesn't surprise me. I'm I'm I support them in a hundred percent, but it's. It's just disheartening to see that it even has to come to this point where people are hunger striking because you're closing their school. Yeah, they have no other school to go to, mm-hmm. and the ones that they that they're going to be shipped to aren't particularly safe for them to travel to. Mm-hmm. 
Like, it, it's just, it, it's silly. It's silly as fuck. Yeah. And uh, I, I know that the latest breaking news is that tonight, um, after the hunger strike uh, and protests uh, forced him off the stage during a public hearing earlier this week, the Chicago Public Schools announced that it will reopen Diet High School next fall as an open enrollment arts-focused neighborhood high school, uh, which is not the proposal that the um, the strikers and the community asked for. They had put a pretty... Um, extensive proposal together they wanted to have a green um technology focused um high school there and so this is not what they wanted i mean it sounds like they're going to be continuing um the the strike until they come to an agreement that reflects the community's wishes and so it's interesting to see that the um chicago public school system has has sees this as a you know okay well we're going to give him this and it'll be okay and it's like yeah but this isn't what we wanted and um kind of seeing this back and forth it's going to be interesting but um despite that announcement i i do um i have read that the the hunger strike is going to continue um until they reach uh, an agreement that the uh, protesters think is um you know suitable for them and the things that they want for their community and for the schools so it is interesting and um Absurdist words, you brought up a great point, which is, you know, how the Black Lives Matter movement has ratcheted things up in terms of expectation of protest, expectation of um, uh, disruption, expectation of, um, you know, interjecting um, the the cause and the cry for for justice or in this case for for, um, you know, uh, appropriate action for a school system uh, from a school system. And what that means when you hear people say, oh, if only they would do X, Y, Z, if only Black Lives Matter didn't blah, 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 because that's something we've all heard over and over again. And here we have a group of individuals um, employing um, some quote unquote old school means of protest and are met with a pretty, you know, deafening silence um, in terms of public support over on the whole and certainly in terms of um, media coverage. So that's really interesting. Um, The other big thing that happened this week was the first uh, hearing uh, of the six police officers that murdered Freddie Gray in Baltimore. Um, I won't even get into the, you know, despicable actions of the Baltimore Police Department uh, to protesters that showed up to support uh, the Gray family in the community that Freddie came from. Uh, They arrested Kwame Rose, um, tasing him while he was on the ground. I mean, really just... Hor- horrific um, actions on their part and nothing that I didn't see when I was in Baltimore um, the day Freddie died and subsequently uh, when we went back uh, when um, the uprising happened there to to Baltimore. Uh, but it's interesting, a couple of things. One, obviously they were trying to get the charges dismissed, which the judge denied, uh, but they will uh, be trying each of the officers separately. And um, so there'll be six different trials that Marilyn Mosby will be prosecuting Um uh, against each of those officers and the deaths and the various counts that she brought forth um, against them. And then um, another uh, weird thing that happened in that was that there was a clarification that the defense is trying to get um, the uh, incident uh, characterized as two different things that occurred, one being um, the unlawful arrest of Freddie um, and potential um, uh, assault there. And then a second incident they're trying to call uh, what happened inside of the van. So I think that's going to be an interesting thing um, for the prosecution to navigate as well. But one thing that irritated me a lot was seeing um, in almost every newspaper, every headline said something to the effect of the Freddie Gray hearing. And I noticed this last year with 
uh, Darren Wilson's grand jury. They would refer to it as the Mike Brown case. And it irritates mm-hmm. me because it just semantically gives the impression that Freddie is the one that's going on trial. It's not his hearing. He's dead. He's the victim here. And you never he see this. You never see this when it's a white victim in the case that they refer to the case as the victim. No, never. No, no. And it's really just been bothering me a lot the last couple of days, seeing it over and over again. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's I think that it's very common um, a lot to take when when we're looking at cases like this, um, you know, to just to speak to your last point, um, to to take away and to sort of distract from the actual culpability of the perpetrators of the crime and recenter that focus on the victims. And that happens not just at this level, but that happens from the very beginning. Mm-hmm. So it happens, mm-hmm. um, you know, the moment uh, something's gone down, the moment we hear about an unarmed black person being killed by the police, um, literally the first thing that happens is that um, we hear about why that person should have deserve to die. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, everybody sort of stumbles over themselves to try to figure out how this can, you know, how it can be their fault first. And then when, when, that's, done, when that's not forthcoming, uh, what happens next is that everybody looks to uh, try to sort of turn the story so that, um, you know, that, so that the, the officers that, that did the killing are, are kind of sort of bystanders in, in this, uh, in terms of how the narrative is. It's just sort of something that they were there, and that, and that appears in the language about it. Uh, these things happened. This person was killed. There are no active agents in the way that we, we, we tend to speak about these things. And so um, even though, you know, obviously every media outlet's different, every you know, piece of coverage is a bit different, there are these themes and there are these memes that run through. And one of those memes is um, when we do have a, you know, a, a white officer killing an unarmed black civilian, um, that black civilian's name uh, both becomes synonymous with the case. Um, it becomes synonymous as as uh, somebody that the, that the police were uh, in opposition to. So it you know it shows you know it, it automatically sets up that paradigm between uh, a, you know good police and the you know the sort of riffraff they have to deal with. And so in in every sort of of, of step, um, this uh, characterization and that that shift of focus. Um, is pervasive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they always yeah. use that phrase, yeah. officer involved shooting. Like, what the, was he just standing there? What do you mean he was involved? I mean, exactly. Like, he was just he was to be checking his watch when a gun went off and a bullet happened to fly out of it. Oh my gosh. No, but see, what you don't understand is that the gun jumped out of his hand and then fired and then jumped back in his hand and looked at him and said, well, you know what? You were involved. We're, we've done this. Live with it. <laughs> Yeah, that's exactly that's, what happens. Apparently, that's what the fuck has to happen yeah. for it to be an officer-involved shooting. Not, not sh- like an officer shot somebody. An officer-involved shootout. Mm-hmm. Yes, that can. Be, that is a thing. Right. That is a thing. When it's two people firing back and forth, an officer-involved shooting is a, is an officer shooting someone. Right. Like, like, and but it comes from the our media's attempt. To be neutral instead of objective. Mm. I always talk about this, and we, you know, and this is a constant thing throughout the movement that when you when you choose neutrality, you choose the side of the oppressor. And people don't. I don't think people understand just how that works on even like the even in this instance. Right. Okay. So the 
the victim dies, right? In all fairness, you can't fucking not point out that the, prob- the person probably didn't need to fucking die, right? Like it's it, it's inhumane and it's 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 so disingenuous that most people, whether no matter how stupid or busy, because you know that that's the majority of Americans were either stupid or busy. Um, no one, even someone stupid or busy, is going to see through that. However, if you then say, "Oh well, guess what? They were jaywalking," or they were selling. They were accused of selling this, or they were accused like, yes, but one, an accusation doesn't equal a conviction, and two, none of these fucking things have a death sentence. So, and the, and the law and the officer, nor anyone else in the public, was that an existential threat? So, that you say those first two things, in when you're being neutral. And you leave out that most important thing, the thing that ties those things together, who's lying and who's telling the truth, or who's wrong and who's right in this situation. And you choose the side of the oppressor because it just looks like, oh, well, both sides, you know, both sides, both both sides were wrong. And it's a shame that we had to lose that this person had to lose his life. But both sides shut the fuck up. Both sides didn't have a gun. Both sides didn't have equal amount of power and protection under the law. Period. And it's it's true. I mean, because one of the things that you see is that um, is that the discussion keeps being moved farther and farther over, and it's moved farther and farther towards acceptable brutality. Because just as you said, you know, the way that the news portrays, uh, you know, conflict, you know, in that neutral versus you know versus responsible way, you know, they'll look at it and they'll say something like, you know, you know, Democrats believe trees are made of wood, Republicans disagree. And, and that's not a headline. That's not a, you know, that, that makes it seem like those are, you know, sort of on par, you know, equally viable positions to take, but they're just not. And so, you know, when the, when the media looks at that and when, when people, uh, you know, uh, absorb that media, they get the sense that, oh, everything is probably fair and equal because, you know, I guess that whether or not trees are made of wood is something that's up for debate. When it when it sure as hell isn't, and so that that effect, what happens when you apply that to the conversation of police brutality is that even when when we're when we're talking and we're trying to defend ourselves, um, what happens is that the, the bar keeps moving forward, and so instead of just looking at what should be clearly obvious that a police officer shooting somebody who posed no direct a deadly threat to them is just wrong and should be unequivocally wrong and it should be globally wrong and obviously wrong. Instead, then we have to go and say, well, he used to smoke weed and there's this picture of him on Facebook holding a blunt. Now, the, the, the reaction to that and the natural reaction to that is then to start talking about, hey, well, does the fact that he did this thing or whatever matter? And already the, the conversation has become distracted. Already, we're no longer talking about the blatant murder of somebody who was innocent and had no weapon, and we're now talking about the, you know, the, the relative merit of their lifestyle. And, you know, even when we're arguing in earnest, it's so easy for us to move off track and to move away to whether or not this chokehold was legal, whether or not, you know, that person had too much attitude, whether or not, you know the cop was cranky and it's okay because, you know, they, they deal with a lot of nonsense. and they, they Like, all of that conversation is stuff that gets distracted, but it pushes that conversation forward. 
So the next time we, we have a, a dead, black, unarmed, innocent person, the conversation doesn't stop, start at, this is ridiculous. It doesn't start at, this is absurd and, and, and insane. It starts at, well, what did they do? And so, so every bit becomes more acceptable. Every, you know, posting pictures of, of the executions of black people becomes more acceptable. We become desensitized. We become, uh, you know, we move farther and farther away from the actual point of the conversation. And that's, that's sort of killing this entire, um, you know, the opportunity to actually discuss this, you know, as adults. Right. And we see but this. But they don't want to discuss it as adults. Right. And we see this, you know, play itself out in so many different ways. Whenever uh, blackness is what is, um, whenever black pain is involved or loss of black life, it's diminished and always explained away. And we see this in our history books when we talk about slavery as though it was something that just occurred and, oh, it was, you know, indentured servitude as if it wasn't this horrific chattel system that treated human beings like they were um, not human. And we saw that this week with this uh, video game playing history slave trade did you guys see this i know i didn't have it in the show notes but i did not as we're talking about this it brought it this to mind so um uh this is out of the netherlands uh, the creators of the game playing history slave trade has have a game out it's supposed to be educational it's aimed at middle school students and you are the character of um a slave who is working on a slave trade ship and they have an actual level in it where there's a slave ship and part of the game is you dropping uh, slaves or, or black characters in the game into the ship to fit them in like Tetris. I'm not wow. making the, I'm not making this up. This is this is like really, truly um mm-hmm. Uh, I missed a lot of horrible shit is what I'm realizing. Yeah. It's but you know bad. what though? It's not as hard. If, if it were you, it's a tool, right? The game itself is a tool. And if you teach with that tool correctly, then you, then it's, it becomes a very valuable lesson in the destruction that Europe has done, not just to this land that we live on, but to the entire world. Europe fucking exported white supremacy to all of its colonies, everywhere, on every continent. And it's... Go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Oh, no, and you can use that, you can use that ship, you can use that tool and say, just think about that. Those people that you're trying to stack up are your family, are your friends. And put, and really add a personal fucking touch to it you know you have to be able to you have to be able to humanize people if you're going to have a game like that and use it as a teaching tool i don't think you can humanize it when it's a game though like the idea of it being a game is automatically dehumanizing it and so you know especially from a country like the netherlands who you know contrary to what they may like people to remember most of their wealth comes from the slave trade their historical wealth came from the slave trade they were a slave trade powerhouse and um it's like this great erasing of people's culpability with regard to black pain and black 
death and black suffering. And so this is just one. And then I guess today, because obviously there was a backlash and people complained about it, their answer was to pull out that level so that the Tetris part is out. But you still have these children playing a character who sees his own sister um, in, you know, captured by slave traders and has to decide how to try and save her. This is the narrative of the story of mm-hmm. the game. I, I just don't know what context that that plays in terms of the realities of the slave trade. Just the idea you know, of it being a game. I, I mean, I agree. And I think that, I mean, I think, and I, and I definitely hear you, Ricky, in terms of, you know, the fact that, you know, obviously we can use, you know, things like video game technology to, uh, to teach and to, you know, and especially at the point where we, that we are now where we can have fully immersive, fully, you know, uh, full world type games. I think there is very distinctly a way in which you can do that in a responsible manner. And I think that you can do that such that it brings, uh, that you can, uh, you know, sort of bring a, a, a truth and a respect and a dignity to the telling of that story. But I think that, that at the same time, um, not doing so is way more dangerous, I think, than not doing anything. Because I feel Absolutely. like uh, when, you are, when you're getting to the point where you are, uh, even if the attention is not to trivialize, you know, by, you know, I'm glad they took this, this Tetris thing out of it, but really, it, you know, the point there is that we're saying we're taking this horrific thing and we're making you doing that horrific thing correctly the goal. Right. And so that's not putting you in a position of saying, hey, let me look at this and deconstruct this. This is saying here, we would like you to empathize with an oppressor role. And that's a very different, um, that's a very different thing. And especially if you're dealing with it in a way that allows it to be trivialized in terms of, hey, this is just a game. Because, you know, in the same way that people can play Call of Duty and really not think about the horrors of war at all, um, in the same way, somebody can play a game about slavery and have the, the reality of slavery uh, never never really crash in on them if it's not done properly because the entire point is that video games are escapism. They're not real. You don't have to worry about the human toll. And so, um, so what I think, like, again, like, you know, it can be done correctly. It sounds like it probably wasn't. And the Dutch sure as hell are not the ones to be doing it. So Definitely not Absolutely. them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, let me just play. I think I got the like little video thing they had. History. Slave trade. Oh, Meet God. Tim. Tim is a slave from Africa who was brought to England to work for Captain Seahab. Like, first of all, just Africa? Wait a minute. Wait a Do you minute. hear this Tim? music? What in the fuck? Tim works for the greedy Mr. Blotherbloom, and they have a plan. Blotherbloom wants to go back to get new slaves. Tim tacks along on the journey. Stop walking around like a headless horse, Grant. You, Tim, are a moronic monkfish. Now, go out there in the rain and help stop Tim isn't in the worst spot he could be for a slave at the time. Do you remember nothing, you useless... Although the captain can be quite demanding. Get us a good price, and you don't even have an offer I can turn down. Now, go get me an offer. Pirates and punctures, what's going on here? It's not you not even trying, you lazy little son of a jungle jingle. Okay, I'll stop it there. Son of a jungle jingle. Oh my gosh. So, like, just Uh... in that bit, I mean, Mm. it, it sounds fun. 
I mean, it sounds, I would like to try slavery now, mm. based, based on that. Um, because, I mean, like, that's the whole thing. The entire, everything about that was kitschy. Like, it was, it, was, yeah. it was cute. It was, you know, they're doing funny accents. There's happy, peppy music. You know, like, can you, I mean, like, and this is what, you know, why we can sort of look at it, you know, in, in context. If there was a Holocaust game there where Nazis were sitting there, you know, cheerily talking about which, you know, which group of Jews they were going to gas today. Or like fitting them in a the gas chamber. The outrage would be immediate and it would be clear to everyone. They would never do it. Yes. That's the whole thing is that literally that will never happen because it's a different, you know, it's an allowed pain. It's an allowed atrocity. It's an allowed, um, you know, it's a never forget moment, not a get over it one. And right, so yeah, exactly. that's 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 where they draw the line. Oh gosh, we we went into a weird area here. But actually, funnily enough, um What in the fuck? That was It's just crazy. Uh, the stuff that happens today. And and also, you know, I always go on about this uh, exposure trolling and I feel like this is another case of that. They were like, "Ooh, let's piss off black people." And now no everybody who never even heard of this company or this line of games will now know about it. And it's so gross. And I feel like this, it's like part of a marketing strategy now to do this. Yeah. Uh, yeah, this, I mean, this happened. John, sorry. Look at John Pennyman. <laughs> I mean, well, let's just be honest. He's I, just you an know, idiot. I'm I'm past the point where I'm I'm not where I'm not naming names anymore. Like as if I'm going to work in a if I'm going to be a media um personality, I have to be able to fucking name names. He's one of them. That uh the sheriff that we're going to talk about a little later He's yet another, and I'll, I'll get to him because he's he's a fucking piece of work. Yeah, boy, I swear. Oh yeah, that dude's an idiot. What were you? Infamy gonna say is him? not fame. I'm sorry, swears. What were you gonna say? Oh no, I was saying, uh, you know, like this is, you know, there's there is a, a an article that's floating around recently, also about a, a rape game that was being released, and, mm-hmm. I, and it feels sort of the same thing, where it's uh, there is a, a bit of let's. Let's go as far over the edge of you know decency and taste to get us to you know get people to talk about it. Um, you know, which is why when I when I when I see these things, I tend not to. I tend to talk about them in the abstract as opposed to pointing people towards them because why? Yeah, I don't. This this that link will not be on the show notes. Uh, <laughs> we may have played it, but we, it will not be on the show notes. Uh, so yeah, so that was the two things I want. Well, three ended up three things to talk about. But uh, why don't we shift uh, the discussion here and start talking about the, the main topic we wanted to cover today, which was tone policing. And it's been an interesting week. Um, I don't know about either of you, but um, there has been just a plethora on my timeline of. Um, both, I would say, you know, allies, I'll put quotes around that word because I don't like it very much, but for lack of a better term at this point, uh, you know, lamenting, uh, the quote unquote pigs in a blanket comment, uh, or chant at the Minnesota, uh, black fair action last weekend and, uh, equal or larger number of black people piss the fuck off about said white people complaining about it. Uh, and it's been interesting seeing it because I, I feel like we've had moments uh, over the last year where there's been some pushback, uh, but I think that the response from black folks has not been quite as 
shall we say, spiritedly irritable as it has been with this one because it's been, it's just so egregious and so over the top, the response to it, that it's, it's just out of hand. And I think that we've all gotten to this point of like, it's almost like a Twilight Zone moment where like you're upset that they chanted something like it's not even in the realm of like something you should even be talking about much less coming to the fore like oh now you want to talk this is what you want to fucking talk about it's 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 just (laughs) it's crazy it's maddening and i don't even know like i didn't want to talk about it too much because my personal stance has been not to even engage people on the topic because i don't think that it deserves to be spoken about to be perfectly honest in terms of like answering for it or explaining it or any of that because it's just complete bullshit but i would like to give voice to the frustration that everyone's been feeling in dealing with those those moments whether it's at work or at home or online it's just been unrelenting and i'm curious to hear what interactions you guys have had about it or or not and what your responses have been. So absurdist words, I'll, I'll start with you and just kind of get your take on it and kind of what you've seen out there in the world. Um, actually this particular piece I hadn't heard much about. Um, there's a, like I said, there's a whole lot of stuff going on. Um, but what, what is notice, you know, what's noticeable about it? I mean, I heard, um, you know, that, that there was this chant and that people were upset about it. Um, this happened. This is not the first time this happened. This has happened before, uh, where we had the, the, you know, people in New York who were making chants that were violent or something like that, and, and that was the whole thing. And really, it's not about the defense of what particular thing a bunch of people shouted at a protest. Mm-hmm. Like that, again, it's a, it's a distraction. That's not, that's, that's not at all the point, because when you have a bunch of people who are saying, these people are killing us, and your response to them is, why aren't you speaking more nicely about them? Mm. Um, we've already moved into the world, like, to, into a realm of absurdity. Mm-hmm. We've already moved into, like, a world of, you know, of, of psychological manipulation. Because the idea is, is that right now, because Black Lives Matter is not positioned against white people in general, it is not positioned, I mean, it is, it is positioned against white supremacy, but it is, it's focused on white supremacy as pertains to police brutality and the behavior of police. And because of the fact that police are uh, lionized in our society, they are, you know, seen as heroes, and because of the fact that they are the ones that are tasked with safety, they also have that leverage of don't speak bad about us because, you know, otherwise we'll let bad things happen to you, or, you know, we won't be there when you need them. And so, by definition, if anybody else, we were talking about anybody else killing unarmed civilians, you know, we could call them anything out of the book, we could call for their heads, we could call for them to die. People could burn them in effigy. All those things would happen if we, you know, when we have a serial killer, when we have a, you know, some sort of molester or rapist. We we all feel perfectly vindicated. And we all feel, you know, as a society in mm-hmm. general, yeah. we feel fine saying whatever the hell we want about somebody who has murdered or somebody who has killed and somebody who has done so with obvious malicious intent. But because it's police, because they have this. Um, privileged role in our society, which I will not say that, you know, in the structure of government is not warranted. We need to have, you know, a situation in which law enforcement is protected from violence because we need to have some sort of respect for law and order. Mm -hmm. But when that law enforcement becomes as criminal as the element they're supposed to be defending us from, 
to be able to still hold that idea of we should be spoken about with respect and we should be exempt from anger or vengeance or rage, um, that, that's not reasonable. Yeah, and for me, it just no. was like another example of, you know, the policing, if you will, of the expression of black folks. It's just this idea that we are not allowed the space to say or feel or be anything. And it it's the, their response was so visceral, uh, you know. I won't even go to the again to the explanation portion of it, but um, a friend of mine who works in a very white environment in a in the religion I belong to, and he um, said that he had you know this person, a white person who was a strong ally and was really discouraged and so upset about this chance and why are they ruining everything and all of these histrionics and. I talked to him at length, just kind of like my <laughs> pretty radical, just like, you know, fuck it kind of attitude about the whole thing. Cause that's just how I've been feeling about it. But at the same time, you know, he has to work in this environment. And I, I, I told him a few things that I thought just objectively. And my, my first thought of course is just, you know, why are you concerned about these chants and not the reason that those people were out there chanting in the first place? That should be where your exactly. focus is. It's nothing to do with what they're saying. And again, we're talking about words. We're talking about words. We are able to say words. It's not hurting anyone to say anything. You believe in free speech unless it's a black person talking about a police officer. That doesn't make sense in the context of what we, you, you claim this country is supposed to be about, which we all know is not true. But he wrote, he did write back to her and I'll, I'll just read a quick excerpt from what he said. Um, he said, I would say, in general, Black Lives Matter is more assertive and vocal than the activists of the civil rights era. They have foregone respectability politics, recognizing that being good, church-going Negroes did not protect black people from violence and assassination, with Dr. King himself being Exhibit A. One of the things I celebrate about this is that the Bayard Rustins and Ella Bakers of the 21st century are not going to be thrown under the bus the way women and gay black men were by heterosexual black male preachers in the 20th century. Another thing that's being cast off by Black Lives Matter is black people's need for white people's approval and acceptance. It's one of the aspects of black life that keeps black people small and shackled to the past. I can't tell you the long-term debilitating effect of living inside the white gaze with the accompanying expectation that any one of us black people can or should attempt to speak for a bunch, if not all of us. My take these days, black life inside national and global white supremacy is a certain ring of hell on earth. That doesn't mean there's no joy, but it does mean that there is a permanent life-threatening quality of being black that is malignant in nature. That malignancy, like that of racism, affects different people in different ways, like any other cancer, based on each individual's makeup and circumstance. If the sickness of racism can make a white police officer choke an honor armed black man to death on the streets of New York and make a white police officer shoot a fleeing black man in the back in South Carolina, I think we have to allow that the side effects of that same racism might make black youth say angry things about the police officers who are supposed to serve and protect them. Yeah. Amen. Not to mention, not to mention. That no one says anything about the white pe- about white people when they have the same issue, mm-hmm. and about to- that no one's home polices the young white people who are out at protests saying "fuck the police" and it, 
even when it is a black person being killed because they understand you know that this is something tragic and they they do sympathize for it with it no one's out there telling police and them other than uh, other than it getting to the point where it's like hey you're putting people in danger like i get that you're upset my nigga but like you're white you can be upset and not get killed if we're gonna die we're gonna die for our, our you know our own being upset ourselves not for you I feel you. Thank you for thank you for your concern and your empathy. But nobody says shit to them. Nobody says shit to to the white protesters who who go and light shit on fire right. at at Black Lives Matter pro, protests. No one other than black people saying, "Hey, check it out. I get that you're upset. Chill the fuck out though, because mm. you're putting the rest of us in danger. Who are we? Who is a black person putting in danger?" When it's a, when it when it's done by a white the, the, by when it's who is a black person putting in danger when they express their own anger themselves mm-hmm. oh the fuck well it's a personal choice and yet yeah, may have some some consequences to the people around them but the people around them are just as fucking angry and it's up to the people around them to deal with it not yo motherfucking ass from some fake ass ivory tower period. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. No, no, you're totally right. <laughs> <laughs> you're right. You're right. I'm sorry. No, I mean, I think, I mean, you're, I mean, you're absolutely right. And I, I, I think I wanted to, to go back for a second to something that Leslie was talking about, and, and just in, in, you know, in reading that, you know, that bit, we hear so much about, you know, the differences between the Black Lives Matter and the Civil Rights Movement, and so much of it is just bullshit. I mean. There, because of the fact that we got, you know, a particular narrow set of movies and, and, you know, documentaries, um, on, on the buzzwords and the, and the really, you know, the, the really famous points of the civil rights movement in the 60s, does not mean that's all there was. Mm-hmm. And I think that, that that narrative of that there was nothing but black men in suits being respectable in church was the entire civil rights movement, and that's nonsense. It right. never was. Exactly. Um, there was always, you know, protests. There was always riots. There were always people who felt that violence was, you know, was justified. There was always people who disagreed. You know, those disagreements, you know, we, we kind of romanticize, you know, the, you know the, the conflict between Malcolm X and Martin Luther King, but then we forget that both of them had, you know, schools of thought and tons of people behind them who thought in different ways, and that there were different camps. And so there's this, there's this sort of romanticized, you know, fairy tale lie about the, the 60s, which says that it was this very neat package thing uh, where, you know, black people, you know, were really nice and they sat down and that won them freedom from racism. And, it's, mm-hmm. and so now Black Lives Matter is being compared to this, you know, non-existent story in the same way that people, you know, compare America to Ozzy and Harriet or Leave it to Beaver. Like it was a time that never happened. It was never there. And so now when we're trying to say, oh, let's be like that time that never happened and let's be perfect like they were, that's not a real thing. And so we lose the humanity of, you know, of, of these movements. We, we lose that, that these are people, these are, that these are real emotions, that these are not just sort of people acting out roles and going through motions, but that there, there's, there's actual uh, fire under all of it. Yeah, and I, I think it's interesting. I, I always, I often, I speak to a lot of museum uh, curators and things like that that are also active in the movement, and they are so focused on making sure that this movement is documented um, and correctly and truthfully. And so um, I, I think that 
people are very aware of that, that uh, the, the whitewashing, the rewriting of history. And we part of the, the, the idea that black lives matter is that our history matters, that what we do matters and that the documentation of it matters. And so that's a, I know that's something that a lot of people are thinking about in some real tangible ways right now. Um, so that's definitely something to think about because I, I think also something I always correct people on a lot is that they think that the movement itself is only about police brutality. Now, obviously, that's a big issue and it's um, one that's a life and death one. But the, the for me, anyways, when I, pe- people ask me to define it, I, I talk about it being this idea that we no longer have to defend or convince people of our humanity. And uh-huh. that takes its shape in every aspect of our lives, not just when it comes to dealing with law enforcement or police interactions, but in education, in media, um, in healthcare, in all sorts of areas where blackness has been subjugated and made to be bad. We don't want that anymore. And so, uh, you know, obviously history is one of those things that's pretty critical when, you know, I say all the time about, I imagine all of the patents that slave owners had and their descendants reaping the benefits of them that were inventions by black slaves. I think about that ask, that that idea. Like, why would Eli Whitney create a cotton gin? He wasn't really worried about cotton. Well, he wasn't the one doing the work, I should say. It would seem to me that a slave would be a little more ingenious to try and do things easier, better, and faster. Um, so I think about they have that a personal often. stake in it. That that idea, literally, of that. their lives. Yeah. Directly. And we can't know. And that's, can't the, know. That, I mean, that's the thing that, that kills me, is that, you know, like, I see a lot, like, you know, there are people who, they, you know, they post, you know, they'll post things about, you know, these are black accomplishments and achievements in history, and then there's a whole bunch of debate about them, and then people are like, well, there's this one and this one, and, 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 and whenever that people start talking about that sort of thing, you know, my, my question is, is, how do you have any proof? I mean, when by definition the rule was that as, you know, being not even people, there was no way in the world that anybody could possibly even legally take credit for, for, for most, uh, you know, achievements in America, um, you know, how, who, who's recording that? Who is recording, you know, what actually happened? Who, you know, we, we, we you know, a lot of times people go out and they, they'll debunk one story or they'll say so-and-so didn't actually do this. But the question is, you know, there's not, there's an unreliable narrator for American history. Mm-hmm. Like, there, and, and so much of it was erased that there is no frame of reference. And that's sort of the thing that's sort of at the bottom of a lot of, of everything that Black Lives Matter touches on, is that um, there is this need to not just uh, sort of reclaim our history in that sort of, you know, in that sort of general sense, but to reclaim the ability to, to, to structure our narrative now. You know, we, we talked about history, and we talked about, hey, you know, uh, you know, we can actually document this now. And right now, we have way more of an ability to document every bit of this movement um, than we could before, but the problem is, is that even now, we, we still don't have control of the narrative. Even now, you know, when we have Twitter, we have all these, you know, social media outlets, but we still don't control the narrative of what happened. We can still have you know, 50 Black Lives Matter protesters talking about something that happens, and then the police come out and say one thing, and that's what the media runs with. Yeah. So, you know, in terms of what actually gets written down, and um, it's, still, it's still up in the air. It definitely is. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, it takes us into this tone policing, which was, you know, uh, Fox News uh, 
saying that uh, they want Black Lives Matter to be labeled as a hate group, which is completely oh, completely absurd. They should be a freaking hate group. They're ridiculous. No, literally. I was. I'm gonna touch on that. Trust um, me. Like, for sure, they definitely <laughs> should be. Um, and it, it all stemmed from the uh, Texas. The text, the killing of the Texas officer. Oh God! And the spectacle that came out of that, which literally involved hours after this uh, murder occurred, the police department holding a press conference and blaming Black Lives Matter for this death. They have no information. They did no investigation. Black person, Black Lives Matter did it. Literally, uh-huh. no. No context, no way that they could possibly know that, no hint at why they thought that, just they were going to say it. And that's it. And again, this is what I was talking about when I was saying that, you know, we keep moving the argument over. I mean, this is just a step over, this argument is just a step over from, you know, the argument saying that anything that happens in the vicinity of a citywide protest is the fault of protesters. Mm. I mean... Uh, you know, somebody robs a store, somebody does a thing, somebody gets into a fight, then there happens to be a protest at the same time. It's by definition the protest is because all black people are the same. We're a monolithic group. Um, and so this is not, this, is, this isn't new. This is just a logical extension. This is just the next step forward. So now we can just say, oh, a black person did a thing to a white person. That must have been part of the Black Lives Matter protest as well. So we're just moving abstraction layers and, and continuing the blame. So somebody, you know, somebody shoots at police from three blocks away from a Black Lives Matter protest, that's the Black Lives Matter protest fault. You know, it doesn't matter. Now it happens, doesn't even have to be around a protest. But now, you know, people are blaming Obama for, you know, for, for stoking the fire and people are blaming, you know, blaming the, anybody who talks about Black Lives Matter or who brings up you know, police brutality uh, for causing anything that happens to white people or police. Um, and so now we've moved that conversation over, and now we have to start here. And so I think, you know, one of the things that we're going to have to, you know, we have to do uh, as a movement is to push that conversation back, is to, you know, is to say, no, 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 let's step back and go back to the point where, um, you know, where the thing actually happened. Let's go back to the point where, you know, just because you happen to be in the same city does not mean that you are the same as these people. And stop accepting the, you know, the broken premises. Um, because we start from these broken premises and then we come to these ridiculous conclusions. And I think we've started to see a lot of that. Like, to me, that, that was, uh, we, uh, you know, as you mentioned earlier, there's been all this before, this, you know, pushing back, this, you know, trying to say X, Y, Z happened or whatever. But I do think that this time is a little bit different, and I've seen the narrative shifting within um, just black folks, generally speaking, not being willing to have that conversation or go in the direction that the media and certainly white folks might want to take it, and just being like, nah, nah, that's not uh-huh. that's not going to happen, and we're not going to even dignify your bullshit with any response because it's not even it's it's laughable, it's absurd for you to come out and trying to make make these outlandish connections that never exist. And we can talk all day and compare this to the fact that uh, Dylan Roof could go and kill nine black people in a church, and that's a lone wolf individual. But any black person does anything anywhere, and it's Black Lives Matter's fault. And you, I've seen the last couple of days really amazing commentary and 
just you know even on news programs i think bill o'reilly had somebody on it was just like yeah but the thing is everything you're saying is stupid because police deaths and shootings are down he's like well they're down slightly no they're down 17 percent, motherfucker and you should get people on your you have people on your show that know what they're talking about and they make you look like an idiot He's like, and the commentator that was on the, on Bill O'Reilly's show said, um, you know, yeah, they're down 17%. Can Black Lives Matter claim credit for that since you're ready to blame them for anything that happens? It's like, you can't get it. You can't have it both ways. Um, uh-huh. The editorial board of the New York Times today put out uh, uh, an uh, opinion piece called The Truth of Black Lives Matter and condemned the entire um, attempts to malign what the movement is about and what um, they're trying what we're trying to say Uh, they say in part the Black Lives Matter movement focuses on the fact that black citizens have long been far more likely than whites to die at the hands of police and is a piece with this and is a piece of this history demonstrators who chant the phrase are making the same declaration that voting rights and civil rights activists made half a century ago they are not asserting that black lives are more precious than white lives they are underlining the indisputable fact that the lives of black citizens in this country historically have not mattered and have been discounted and devalued people who are unacquainted with this history are understandably uncomfortable with the language of the movement but politicians who know better and seek to strip this issue of its racial context and content are acting in bad faith they are trying to cover up an unpleasant truth and asking this country to collude with them so I'm hopeful when I see stuff like that because I think to myself like, a, you know, it's good to see a media uh, entity as large as the New York Times being like, yeah, okay, we can't even just let this go and report it as if it's fact just because they got up in front of some cameras and said some shit because that's generally what happens, mm-hmm. you know. About anything, really, whether it's something as small as how many people were at a demonstration to whether the um, police were the antagonistic party in a confrontation with protesters, as is often the case. Whatever the police say, that's now official. I don't even like that word. What does that mean, official? Official who? Who gives these people the authority to be the official anything? And I think that that's something that we need to push back on as a movement as well. This idea of the official statement and what that means and what weight there should and shouldn't be with that phrase. Ricky, why should there, you know, I, I don't understand why there should be any weight considering, I mean, like literally in every case that I can possibly think of, of the death, of the shooting death of an unarmed or, or just the murder of an unarmed civilian by cops, every single one has, has, has involved false, falsified reporting. Everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, I cannot think, I literally, uh, and I could be wrong, and somebody can fact check me on this, but in every single, you know, high profile black shooting, there has been a case in which the police, initial police reports were falsified, um, and in a lot of those cases, those falsified reports were, um, you know, were corroborated by other, you know, members, and that stuff went out as the official report. And so, you know, there is no, there's no, uh, questioning. There's no how many times do you have to lie blatantly and provably before we can start just calling bullshit the moment you show up. Yeah, but here's the problem. Like, this is the inherent problem with the official report when the when the person who who should be going on trial is the official. Yep, mm. that's the problem. Yeah, like <laughs> when the person who's like when the person. Uh, Think about who writes the fucking police report. 
Who's following that police report? The person who just killed someone. Right. It's they're inherently biased. Whether it and you can argue, you know, just to what degree that they're biased. They're inherently biased. They're saving like if if you killed someone, wouldn't you save your own ass? And if you had the power, as like as as a listener, literally, like if if you killed someone and you could save your ass from being held accountable for it, unless you just wanted to be held accountable for it for some strange fucking reason. But let's say you did, or you didn't. You have all the yeah. fucking power in the world in that mm-hmm. particular yeah. situation. Your, I mean, all your it voice is, is the is, voice of the people. Yeah, I mean, and, and the police report is defendant testimony. That, that's really what it is. Exactly. Yes. You know, that's exactly the point. Yeah. Is that what we're listening, when we hear the police report, all we're hearing is advanced defense testimony. And that's how we should report on it. Because, obviously, if you said, hey... You know, what did you do? We wouldn't take this kind of nonsense from our kids. You know, like, you know, if the kid came in and said, I didn't eat the cookies, and, you know, well, I guess he said he did it, and uh, that's all we need to know. I mean, that's ridiculous. We don't, we don't, we, we have critical thinking for a reason, and we, we don't apply that to the police because it's too scary. I think that's, that's, I think that's the thing. I think once we, we, we let go of the lie that the police are a responsible organization that is, you know, credible on its face, um, then everything falls apart and we have to rethink a, a big chunk of society. And I think that's very daunting. Mm. Yes, it is. I agree. And I think that that comes from, the, in order for that to happen, American conservatism must die. I'm not saying it doesn't have I'm not saying the people have to die, but the ideology of the American conservative from day one of setting foot on this land from from the day that fucking Columbus set foot has been a cancer. Mm. Literally, like you can call, you, you know, we this country was was born with a con- with several congenital diseases, one of them being white supremacy, white male supremacy. And you know, when you look at modern conservatism, look what the fuck you're conserving. Uh-huh. Like, let's, you know, what are you, what are you conserving? You're, you're conserving rape. You're conserving murder. You're conserving unaccountable loss of human life. And on top of that, like it, you, like every during every fucking era of of American history, conservatives have rewritten history. They've blatantly and boldly said what the fuck they've done from, again, from 1492 on. Blatantly made no qualms about what they did. We know exactly what happened to the natives of Cuba and the fact that there are no real actual natives of Cuba. You know, we know that the Civil War was fought expressly in with without question about slavery black african slavery we know these things they've said them however they keep being allowed to rewrite history because yeah conservatism is a is a cancer i it, it is what it is and it reproduces because it's simple it's easy and you don't have to be very smart to adopt it and if there's a reward at the end it grows 
Liberalism, I, I'd argue, is a fucking cold, but conservatism is a cancer. You can get, you can deal with a cold. You can't deal with a problem with a fucking cancer. So it's either American conservatism or this concept of America that, this grand concept of, the, of America that we say we are and we want to be. Those are the only options logistically. I don't like saying this shit. I don't. I mean, it it sounds fucked up to even have to say, but logistically speaking. Fuck else is gonna happen. Hmm. Well, I mean, because we are looking at you know when you're looking at how that white conservative um, you know ethos goes. I mean, the concept of you know it, it, the whole thing is is, is gaslighting, or you know the game I I, I call here you be the asshole, um, and you know the whole concept of uh, constantly sort of just taking and taking. And, and sort of running over things and destroying and, 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 and profiting off of it. And then when anybody said, hey, by the way, you, you're cheating, um, the conversation is turned around. And it's, no, 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 it's not us, it's you. Yeah. So, I mean, that, that language has been happening from the beginning. The very first, you know, uh, characterizations of black people after, after emancipation was black people are lazy and shiftless. The people who had been tilling your, you know, your fields and doing all the goddamn work in America for 400 years, those people, that, that, was, the, that was the tag they gave them. They gave them, you guys are lazy, and, and went with it. And, it was, and it, was, it, was, it was completely ridiculous then. It was ridiculous for a bunch of people who had spent their time, you know, living off of the work of people that they bought. Um to turn around and then characterize those people as lazy. We do the same thing with, you know, with undocumented immigrants, where, you know, the people who are often taking some of the worst jobs in America are, you know, we turn around and we say, oh, those lazy people are taking our jobs. And we don't even have to be, you know, it's not even consistent. The, you know, the argument isn't inconsistent. They're taking our jobs, they're doing all these things, but at the same time they're lazy and they don't do anything. And so this, this the concept jobs. of turning them around, exactly. And the concept of turning that, turning it around on, on the victim is, is the core of that conservatism, of saying everything was nice until you women got uppity. Everything was nice until black people got uppity. Everything was going just fine until Black Lives Matter started. You know, that's the constant narrative, is that mm. everything was fine, and then you complaining is what caused the problem. Yeah. And so that's the, you know, yeah. the thing now where we, you know, we, were, we were just talking about um, you know, the idea that, you know, that racist is nigger for white people, where, you know, being called on your shit is now a bigger uh, offense than the shit that you did that you were getting called on. Yes. Yes. And that's that's pervasive throughout even liberalism. Hence, you know, why I call it shit a cold as opposed to the cure. And, Absolutely. you know, there's a there's a degree of human nature that's in, uh, associated with it but th this is the to to this degree it is a cancer like it's literally like the guy punching you in the face over and over and over and saying you hurt my hand with your head hmm. exactly and when you say hey bro like i can't fucking see can someone help me get to a hospital well i'm gonna have to go to a hospital too because you know you hurt my 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 hand with your head by just repeatedly getting in its way while I was swinging what and then the and then the bystanders though you know but the, yes. and, and it's that Both just sides. to continue your continue that you've got your bystanders too who are looking at that and then you say to them 
hey, you know, can you help me get to the hospital? This guy just beat me up. The bystanders are saying, hey, well, can you prove to me that you're hurt enough? You know, can you prove to me that you were wounded enough? Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, convince me why I should take you to the hospital. Right. And that's what we're getting from people who claim, you know, I'm not racist. I just need you to convince me that your life matters. Right. And yeah. that's, that's psychological warfare. It you is. know, even from the people who claim to be benign, it's this constant abusive warfare. You see it in a domestic relationship the same way of, you know, constantly telling people, you know, telling the victim, you're the person that's wrong. You're the person who made me hit you. Mm -hmm. You know, if you hadn't, if you just hadn't done this thing, you know, then I wouldn't do this. And then, you know, make them go and say, here are the ways that you can make me be nice to you. And that's what we get right, and that's what we're getting right now. And, you know, as we were talking about from allies, um, we're getting that thing right now of, of, well, here is the way that we would like you to express yourself so that we can agree with you and support you, because otherwise we don't care. And that, and, and even in that, you know, in the liberalism, you know, aspect of that, it's so insidious, that idea of we can choose whether or not to care about you, and that's something that you should be courting from us. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And, um, you know, I wanted to touch on the Nicki Minaj, Miley Cyrus, Taylor Swift madness, because I think that we're talking about some pretty heavy issues and, and um, you know, life and death issues. And certainly when we're talking about um, police brutality and police terror, um, it, it's it's, uh, you know, a blood loss, life loss situation. But I think it's interesting the situation with Nicki Minaj and Miley Cyrus because we see these same things play out in so many different ways and how mm -hmm. the reaction to our incredulity and uh, unwillingness to accept less than we deserve is consistently met with a cry saying we're the problem for, for calling this situation out. So for those who don't know... Um, um, Nicki Minaj took ex took issue with her the exclusion of her video Anaconda from the video of the year category at the MTV Video Music Awards this year because she quote felt that black women influence pop culture so much but are rarely rewarded for it okay now I take that to be a pretty powerful statement from a mm -hmm arguably one of the biggest artists in the world right now and I think that certainly her video I think that's a, that's, that's a critique that she is in a unique position to make. Um, she's not just some random person. She's in the business. She's in the industry. She's been doing this for quite some time. And this is an observation that she has as a black woman in this particular space that she is a pretty big player in. I don't know anybody else besides like a Beyonce or something like that, that would have the, um, I guess the, narrative the personal experience to really make that kind of a statement and i thought it was a good one and i when i read it i was like okay you know i could see you making that argument certainly uh we we've discussed on this show many times about how uh white supremacy devours blackness whether it's our culture our hair our music they eat it and then they regurgitate it for themselves and take it from us. So this was just a, uh, for me another expression of that concept and i thought it was a really good one. So, um, Taylor Swift got on her feelings because she was nominated, I guess, for video of the year. And she took this personally as it's want to happen when you mention anything involving white people. They always think it's about them. And she was like, I've always supported you. And I don't know why, you know, we need to stick together. All of that bullshit. 
apparently somebody talked to Taylor because she came to her senses pretty quickly and was like, oh, I didn't quite, I didn't get what you were trying to say and understand it now. I didn't understand, you know, sorry. Okay. I, it seemed as though it was kind of like a non-issue anymore. The two of them, they didn't, they stopped talking about it. It was over. So Miley Cyrus, uh, in speaking with the New York Times uh, late last week, thought that Nikki was being selfish when she made her remarks. She said, quote, when I read, what I read sounded very Nicki Minaj, which if you know Nicki Minaj is not too kind, it's not very polite. I think there's a way you speak to people with openness and love. She continues, you don't have to start this pop star against pop star war. It became Nicki Minaj and Taylor in a fight. So now the story isn't even on what you wanted it to be about. Did she forget that, like, she had nothing, that Taylor started that, that Taylor inserted herself into the fucking equation? Mm-hmm. I, uh, fucking white people. Yeah. It's not always about you. Mm. She says, um, if you do things with an open heart and you come and think with, with love, you would be heard and I would respect your statement. But I don't respect your statement because of the anger that it came with. What I read sounded very Nicki Minaj, as I mentioned. So she was basically taking, she was tone policing Nicki Minaj, uh, Miley Cyrus. I just, I just, the, the concept of this is, is not escaping. I hope anybody, if you saw her antics on uh, the VMAs in previous years with uh, Robin Thicke, she's tone policing Nicki Minaj, who made a statement about her feelings about not being included in the video of the year category. And well, then, yeah, because you know, because white people can code switch too, um, and I mean, and that's what happens is that you know when we you know when it became a thing of you know Nikki talking to you know, of Miley uh, talking to Nikki, uh, it became the thing of oh oh I'm a, I'm a very you know soft spoken proper person, and you know I would never get mad or or upset, and I don't understand why you're so mad, and again it's like it's another gaslighting piece, it's another um, thing of saying. Um, you know, whenever you say I would have respected you except for the fact that you're mad, what you're really saying is I don't, I don't, I didn't respect what you had to say. Yeah. Because if you actually respected it, then you would also empathize with why they were upset. And it wouldn't be a matter of, oh, because you've made this thing, um, now I'm upset. What I, what I hear all the time when I'm seeing, you know, happen everywhere is this idea of, of white ennui with black resistance to racism. And it's, it's sort of more um, offensive to me than, you know, having some white supremacist call me nigger is to have somebody sit there and tell me that the problem that I very distinctly am having doesn't exist. Mm. Um, and that, that is something that happens because obviously in Miley's world it doesn't exist. It's not a thing that she has to deal with. And so from her, in her perspective... You know, why are you talking about this race thing? All these people who grew up in uh, an era where there wasn't segregation, where, you know, it wasn't, where racism wasn't as obvious, it meant that they couldn't see it. It doesn't mean that we can't see it. Um, and so I think that there is a big, you know, aspect of, of um, you know, her saying that, you know, again, if you would only do it my way, I would then, you know, decide that you were valid. Right. And, and that's a ridiculous point. I mean, and definitely coming from Miley Cyrus, but coming from anybody. You know, 
I will only respect you if you give me the message in the way that I want it. It's, it's arrogant and it's ridiculous. Right. And we've seen this time and time again, especially in media, especially with regard to black women. I've dealt with it myself online where somebody will, will come at me, I'll clap back, and now I'm the angry black woman coming at them. Uh-huh. And that's the basic scenario that was set up. Like, oh, Nikki's being mean because she did clap back at Miley. I think rightfully so when they were in the same room together and kind of was like, mm-hmm. you know, you had a lot of shit to say about me on in these newspapers. Why? Like, what is your problem? What's good? And Salon literally put a tweet out after um, the VMAs that said that Nicki Minaj savagely came after Miley Cyrus at the VMAs in an expletive laden rant. First of all, Expletive, she used the word bitch once. I don't think that on network TV, bitch is an expletive anymore. One. Two, if you say something once, that doesn't make it laden. And three, you yes. can't be a rant when people cut your fucking mic off. So it's like mm-hmm. you've, you've taken uh, an entire phrase that has nothing to do with what actually happened because it's okay for you to call a black woman savage because it's okay for you to just make up what happened in the scenario because she's a black woman and she was talking to a white woman and therefore she's in the wrong. And there's where the tone policing comes into play. And it just gets to be, you know, as I read in that, that piece earlier, it just gets to be oppressively like, you know, that phrase, I can't breathe, takes on new meaning when you think of it in these contexts because we can't even fucking think. You know, it's stifling. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, mm-hmm. and you can't understand that if you're not in it. And I think that, um, I mean, part of, you know, and I, I talk about this a lot when I'm, you know, when I'm talking with people on Twitter, is that a lot of, of the problem of, of white supremacy is that you have a bunch of people who, who are, just, are just mindlessly in it. They don't know, you know, they don't realize that, you know, when they're saying, oh, just can't everybody get along, or when they're saying, oh, just can't everybody just love each other, or, hey, you know, let's just all be colorblind, that that's not helping, that that doesn't, that that's not, uh, that's not a principled position. You know, let's forget about the violence and just concentrate on the peace is not a principled position. It does not give you moral high ground. All it's doing is ignoring the actual pain and the actual things that are going on. Because, you know, even here, you know, we're not talking about life or death, as he said, but we are talking about how people are regarded in the industry, how people are valued in the industry. And for somebody like Miley, it is not difficult, it would not be difficult for her to get up there and use her gigantic platform, for which she has gotten a lot of accolades for being feminist and being sex positive and all these other things, to get up and, and to make the statement that, yes, I stand on the shoulders of lots and lots of black performers who created my, you know, the things that I developed my style from, who, you know, who gave me the basis of what I do, and, I, and I, you know, I appreciate that, I respect that. Such a small thing for, you know, a, a popular white person to do, to acknowledge, you know, where they came from and to acknowledge how they got there, but by not doing that and then going on to, you know, to, to, to shout down, you know, black women who are in the, you know, who are in the industry um, makes you doubly wrong. Yeah, and I mean, honestly, like, what I've seen from people, that, here, first of all, here's the thing. Miley, even she may seem liberal, she has a conservative mindset. Because the only reason she even is, is sex positive is because it benefits her. The only reason she's, she's you know, supportive of black, of black culture to the degree that she is, which is very little in the first place, but eh, we'll, we'll leave that aside. 
It's because it benefits her. Like, this shit, it's no fucking secret. If the only time that you are for something is when it benefits you, then you're not for something. Period. Right. And the other thing, too, is it's like, and I've seen, like, a lot of black people defending um, Miley. You're talking about, you know, Nikki in this negative light. And it's like, okay, well, here's the thing. I'm from the hood. Nikki's from the hood. Nikki's from fucking Jamaica, Queens. And you know what you don't do? You don't run your mouth about somebody and say shit about them that you won't say in front of them. Mm. Off, off top. Mm-hmm. You, don't run and, you don't run and talk shit about somebody and then, like, you, you need your hood pass revoked. Off, t- off top. That's one thing you do <laughs> not fucking do. Run your mouth. If you're going to run it in private, run it in public. Period. And shit, and I, you know, I'm one of those people, I do my best to, to, I don't like conflict, but if I say something about you in private, that don't mean I ain't going to say it about you in public. That don't mean I won't say it directly to you. Period. Right. And it, if and if I it also, needed to be said to someone else, it needs to be said to you. Right. And I also feel like, you know, my, from my perspective, anyways, I can only imagine the amount of times that this has happened to Nicki Minaj. You know, yes. I think about her being in this industry for all of these years and having to deal with this consistent thing that she comes up against, which is no matter how popular she gets, no matter how album she um, sells, no matter how many hits she has, no matter how many records she breaks with her videos, whatever the case may be, all of these quantitative things that should make her have the respect that she has earned she doesn't get it and that's mm-hmm. where i have the and that's where that's why she had to clap back because it's like nah fuck you you're not gonna come up here and say any kind of shit you want to you don't deserve you, you haven't earned that to talk to me to talk about me in that way fuck you and yeah. I, you know i am i'm happy that she did it and i'm happy to see all of us kind of like yeah i see you miley and that's not going to run. But I think that that brings me to another conversation or topic I wanted to talk about, which was this idea that tone policing brings about, or I would say in previous, even a year ago, a year, six months ago would have brought a lot of um, consternation on the, on the part of black people um, in and outside the movement and would have had a, a level of discomfort in addressing it and i feel like that discomfort is gone because we're just fed the fuck up like i i i used to be a restaurant manager for many years and i you know frequently not frequently but sometimes i had to fire people and i had to write them up and stuff and the first time i wrote them up i would say you know this is a very uncomfortable conversation for me today if we have to have it again it's going to be very uncomfortable for you and i I feel like this is the time where all the black people are like, yeah, we were uncomfortable before, but now you should know better, bitches. And it's going to be real uncomfortable for you now. And it's been really interesting seeing these different types of conversations where I haven't seen the fuse so short before. Um, and I've noticed it across the board and particularly with black women. Like, I'm not kidding. I'm in some groups with some black women and I have never seen the level of just like, nah, this bitch tried to get in front of me again at the bakery. Like, that's the level of just like, nah, that's it. We not dealing with that shit no more. Like, literally, that's the level of just kind of like fed upness that people are at. What do you guys think about that? And where do we go from there? I think it's been really interesting seeing it um, from a sociological perspective because it's, it's, it's just to me, it's a shift. And I've seen, I felt it in myself where I'm at the point where I just do not give a fuck. 
like at all. We saw it this week with the Black Lives Matter statement, just like, yeah, we don't fuck with you, Democratic Party. And I don't give a shit what your fucking statement says. Fuck you. Mm-hmm. That That is another signal. It's like, yeah, nah, mm-mm. That's the, whatever you thought was going to placate people is not going to happen. We saw it when I mentioned earlier about the diet um, uh, yeah. hunger strike where it's like, oh, they thought this would be enough to placate them. And there's a quote from the leader of them. He said, they don't realize our resolve was what he said. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting to watch. Have you guys felt this shift as well? And is it just something I'm making up in my head? It's just been really kind of like something I've been noticing a lot more lately. What about you, Absurder's Words? I think there's been like a reinforcement. I know that, I mean, I know that for myself, you know, since I've been, I've, I've been on Twitter for, you know, a little under a year now. And, um, and I, I noticed that one of the things that sort of happened is that, you know, whether in Twitter or, you know, how Twitter ends up leaking out into the news and how all these things have gone, I think what has happened is that um, a lot of black people have started to find, um, not that they're finding their voice, they're finding everybody else's voice. Mm. Um, and I think that there is a lot of communication, there's a lot of reinforcement. Um, I think there is, you know, because of the fact, you know, that Twitter has, been, has grown as, an activist tool and a, and a, and a, as a youth, like the growth of black Twitter um, being a you know being a thing that um, where where there is so much um, discourse and there's so much exposure to other you know to other black perspectives to you know to to watching the experience of black people talking about um, these things and I feel like especially with all of these killings being in the in the um, in the news. What, what it seems to be happening is that um, it's called a lot of the, the, the underground racism out. I think it, we've had an Ali Ali oxen free for racists in America um, because of the Black Lives Matter movement. And so I think that even a lot of people who, um, who black people may have seen as allies or they've seen as friends are suddenly being forced to pick sides. And so I think that that comfort zone is going away. And, that, and white people are noticing that. Um, because you can hear them complaining about it all the time and saying, you know, I don't understand why the race thing is so big, and Obama did it, and blah, 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 blah. And what they're really saying is the co- our comfort zone is gone. Mm. And I think that um, having that gap where now we're no longer just able to, you know, you know sort of in, indulge in our, you know, in our fantasy that we're, we live in a post-racial society. Just five years ago, you know, the concept post-racial society was being bandied about all over the place. People were talking about it on the news all over the place. Are we in a post-racial society? The answer is fuck no. Um, and that's obvious, and that has always been obvious to us, but I think it's becoming obvious to everybody else, and that's making people uncomfortable. And I think that um, seeing that we can make people uncomfortable and, by, and pull them out of their comfort zone and, and disrupt the status quo, that's something new for us in this generation. Up until now, that's been something that we heard about. Um, in the in the you know in the sixties, and then we had this point of you know sort of some black expansion, some you know we had some uh, level of of growth, um, but then we got a, a period of complacency where we were like, oh, I guess we don't really have to talk about this anymore, mm. and we've gotten back to that that subject. And so I think I, I agree with you. I feel like um, there's a lot of you know just even, even in the last year um, since. Black Lives Matter started, there's just a lot of shit I don't put up with anymore. Mm. There's lots of things where I'm like, you know, I would have just sort of laughed it off uncomfortably or I would have been like, oh, I'll just let that slide. I know that they're really, they don't, you know, they're not really racist or whatever. 
and, and it doesn't fly with me anymore. I mean, people say shit that would have slid, you know, slid with me five years ago, and I'm like, fuck you, you know? Yeah. So it's a very different, I think there is a very different atmosphere, and I think that that's driving a lot of the anxiety that you're seeing in white America, um, which happens every time black people start complaining about what's going on with them, but that everybody gets really, really uncomfortable. Right. And, and I think that there's a level of just like, we've, we've been uncomfortable and it's going to be, have to be okay for you to be uncomfortable too. Like mm-hmm. it just is what it is. How about you, Ricky? Well, you know, I'm sorry, white America, but black people have run out of fucks. <laughs> there's a fuck recession within the black community. And luckily, hope, luckily for you white people, I have a fuck generator. And we'll see if this works today. I don't, let, me, let me make sure it's up on the soundboard. Uh, here we go. Let's see if we can get, generate some fucks for black people. Let's get it. Now generating fuck. I don't know. Doesn't sound good. Nope. Sorry. No fucks available. Nope. None. Sorry, nope. white people. Sorry. I, I, mean, I would try to lend you some, but I, I'm out. I gave up my last one yesterday. <laughs> but you know what, though? Honestly, for me, I got plenty of fucks. I have plenty of fucks to give. I just don't give them out anymore. They're yes. for me. They, the we hoard them now. <laughs> they <laughs> opportunity hoard. That's right. White this people opportunity hoard and we fuck hoard. Yeah. I'm one of those people who I actually care about human beings. I care about, you know. And so, yeah, I have plenty of fucks to give but in a fuck recession you don't do that remember rich white people didn't do it in the last recession we had why would i why should i be expected uh-huh. to do that with my fucks but I mean, there, okay, I... in all seriousness in all seriousness it's it, it's a it's a matter of progress it's it's a matter of this is when people say what has black what have these protesters done nigga this this <laughs> yeah. the fact that we can have this conversation the fact that you were less tolerant tolerant over racism because you know what? It's somebody like um, John Stewart's last show when he said, "When you smell shit," or, I'm, I'm paraphrasing. When you smell shit, say something. Well, guess what? They said something, and now the conversation has to be had. Oh, the fuck! Well, there are people in the conservative movement that don't want to have this conversation. There are conservative-minded people who don't want to have this conversation. Too fucking bad. We're gonna have a conversation about the giant elephant in our living room taking a shit and sitting on everything. Sorry, it's got to happen at some point. Mm. It does. It really, really does. Um, so I guess that leads me to my final uh, concept I wanted to go into, which was this idea of defending the movement and where you each stand on that concept of like, um, you know, I mentioned about my my dream for what will signal that Black Lives Matter to me is this just refusal or not the need for us to defend or uh, make the case for our humanity not being there. And it's actually something I just don't do anymore. And if I'm in the, that's where my fucks are gone. If there's ever a minute where I'm trying to convince you of my worth, I'm out. I don't have a conversation with you. It's just deuces and I'm gone. And I left my church over shit like this. Like for real, I just don't, I don't tolerate it anymore. And that for me has been a big shift internally. Um, but I have seen, you know, when especially people like I, I, I have the luxury. I'm, a, I'm a, an organizer and an activist full time and I don't necessarily have to put myself in white spaces if I don't want to. But lots of people don't have that luxury and they are in a white environment all the time. And so a lot of people have been expressing this idea. People come up to them and like, 
well why did why did they chant that thing why why are they saying this why why is it so violent like putting every person every black person that's ever said black lives matter or posted an article about black lives matter or anything about the movement itself in the position to be you know pr person and spokesperson for all of blackdom which is ridiculous in of itself but what should the response be in those moments what what is the answer to these irrational uh question and cornering that happens in this moment of insecurity and uncomfort and discomfort that white folks are feeling right now because that's their first you know they feel the discomfort and their first thing to do is find a black person to make them feel better i i mean i i answered this i got tired of fielding those questions a while ago and so, for me, I, I ended up writing an FAQ on how to talk to black people if you're white. Um, and so, I, you know, I posted that on Tumblr um, and for, for this exact purpose. Because I, I do feel that in a lot of situations, there are people who are genuinely want to learn or they generally want to understand. And, um, and the truth is, is that they're not going to get that answer for a white per- from a white person. And black people are tired of explaining it. Mm. And so, that kind of puts you in a hard place and that kind of sucks. But, um, and so for me, you know, my response was, hey, I'm not answering these questions anymore. I will literally hand you a link Mm. um, where I have answered these questions um, on, you know, why, you know, isn't Black Lives Matter, you know, racist? You know, why did somebody call me racist because I'm not in the Klan? Why, you know, all these questions that I get from, from people who ask me about it, I don't defend it anymore. I'm like, go read the fact, and when you're done... Then come back and talk to me because then you'll have your, your sort of baseline, um, you know, fundamental, fundamental area of, you know, of knowledge. Um, but it, I mean, it's case by case. I mean, I, I think that there are some people who really are coming in and they're not really asking because they care. They're coming in because they're controlled. They're concerned trolling. They want to tell you, oh, you know, I think your movement would be better if you did this. Or I, I think that, you know, you know, I agree with your movement, but... And I'm like, you know, if you've got a butt at the end of your statement, um, then I really don't have anything to say to you right now. So, um, so for me, I, I literally created a tool to help, you know, to help deal with that. And I'm, I'm going to be coming out with the third uh, advanced chapter. It's I was divided say, into part two. Uh, I, rem- I know. It's uh, divided into beginning and uh, uh, intermediate. Uh, I'm not to write the advanced portion, but um, but it's a real problem. I mean, because you can't especially if you're on a place like Twitter or if you're on social media, you cannot field the same question every fucking day. Mm. Like, it, mm-hmm. it's too much. We have other shit to do. We have a movement to do, so we can't spend all of our time explaining the movement to you. Right. So, um, so, you know, I think the more that we, you know, we sort of make sure that there's, you know, there's a repository that we can just point people to and go, here, go learn some things on your own. Because that's the other thing, is that Google also still works. So... Um, part of that, you know, that question of people coming up and being like, why is this? Um, part of that is if you really want to know, then go read some fucking history. Like, go, uh, you know, take some time and go and learn about what actually happened and, you know, show some investment. Because I see that there's a lot of uh, people saying, hey, can you tell, you know, tell us what, the, what the, you know, the demands of the movement are? Why doesn't the movement do this? Why doesn't the movement do that? And, you know, my answer is always, you know, if you don't know what's going on, then, then you don't get to care yet. Um, you know, you're not here. Um, you're not doing anything, you know, towards the, towards the thing. So you're the last person in line to, you know, to come in with critique or come in with, 
you know, some sort of, you know, asking me to justify why I have to justify that literally black lives matter, because that's, that's literally the point. That's it. Yeah. And to add to that, like, there are some people who aren't concerned trolling. They just want to be in this ivory tower. Yeah. They want to be a part of the club. They want to be. They want to be looking down on everyone and comments and, and commenting on it. And they want to be free to do that. Um, yep. Well, first of all, you got to be qualified to do that. I'm me personally. Do I feel like I have the skill set to do it? Oh, sure. That don't mean I'm fucking qualified to do it. You, some motherfuckers don't even have the the, the skill set to do it. You can't. The, the cognitive dissonance that lies within them. It's just amazing to the point that there's no way that you have any right in sitting in a fucking ivory tower judging anyone. No more than David Brooks does. The only thing that David Brooks is there for at the New York Times is to pitch shit like this. And and I was actually going to bring that up earlier where, you know, the New York Times statement is great. But when you have you have your biggest fucking columnist show up and preach the 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 moral failings of poverty. And then you systemically put black people at a higher rate of poverty. Who do you think he's talking? In effect, who the fuck is he talking about? Right. You know, it's a good statement on its face. And it's one of those that when people look back in history, again, I, I think it's a, an attempt to rewrite history, to be honest. I think it is. To say, well, you know, we were against this too. We, we said that this was absurd. Yeah, but you were also perpetuating it at the same time. No, I yes. mean, the thing is about all of these systems. All of these systems is that they're entrenched in white supremacy and they benefit from yes. it. There's no way to, to, to move them apart. What I was appreciative of is this acknowledgement that this, this particular take on trying yes. to make Black Lives Matter into something that is not, it's like, come on, we're talking about people literally going on television and saying the sky is green or red or two mm-hmm. plus two equals 23. I mean, none of it makes sense. And that's why it's like, are you a journalist? Is this a media outlet? Like, what the fuck is going on here? Because this is crazy talk that you're reporting this bullshit, which is blatant lies with no facts to back it up whatsoever as information. But it's just, but, but it's just it, an opinion, Leslie. My opinion is that two plus two equals purple squared. <laughs> <laughs> it's my opinion, oh. okay? Equal time, equal opinions. <laughs> oh my gosh. You guys are just so racist. So oh, racist. racist. So racist. <sighs> oh my goodness. Well, we're coming up on the end of the show here, but I wanted to give some final thoughts from each of us and then, of course, want to make sure everyone knows where to find each of you. So, Ricky, final, final thoughts on this whole concept of tone policing and kind of how it's showing up in our lives and, and our reaction to it as people in the movement, as black people in general. Yeah, I, I mean, tone policing in general has always been a disingenuous act when the, there is a power dynamic that's not being acknowledged. Like when, say, me and my younger brother would get in trouble, and it was probably eh, – I, I was a terrible older brother to him, but – well, my one of them anyway. Um, if I whooped his ass for fucking three hours and all of a sudden you all you heard was, was us rumbling down because I'm whooping his ass and he's, you know, on the receiving end, you don't say both of y'all behave. You know, it, there's a power dynamic there that's happening that you're ignoring. It's disingenuous as fuck. If you were saying, you know what, Ricky, you sit the fuck down and behave. And look, I understand you're mad. Do what you got to do to deal with it. But leave him alone and I'll take care of it. 
then you know what that that's that's fair that's at least fair i may not like it as the as, as the person on the on the oppressed end that someone else has to deal with my problem but they have the power to do so and i do not so when you're tone policing and you're ignoring that it, go fuck yourself go mm. go eat a bag of baked camel dicks period sour cream and onion flavor maybe if that works for you mm. all right <laughs> absurdist words final thoughts yeah um, I mean, for tone policing is always it's always a matter of control, and I think the way that it's used here, and whether or not it's sort of in a in an obvious, you know, hardcore white supremacy way, or if it's in a sort of benign way, it's always the exact same thing. And and in here in America, the truth is is that um, is that white people have always controlled discourse in America. They've always controlled discussion. They've controlled the parameters of discussion. They literally control language. You know, and, I, and I, I touch on this, you know, often about, you know, you know, when you talk about, you know, a lot of times what you'll get is people talking about, you know, not using the term race properly or not using the term racism properly. And, um, and even that is just a matter of saying, no, 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 you have to use our definitions to express yourself, otherwise we can't hear you. And so it's, it's constantly about control, and it's constantly um, just a, a, a way of, of keeping black people from being able to control the conversation. Because even sitting back and listening to black people is seen as a defeat um, in, a, in a white supremacist um, you know, environment. Mm -hmm. And so tone policing, it says, listen, you are not allowed to have any sort of resistance. I mean, because again, try and tone police somebody talking about 9-11. Mm -hmm. I mean, just try it. Um, go out there and talk, you know, somebody, you know, some mother or some, uh, you know, per, per, you know, wife of a victim of 9-11 who is talking and crying about their, you know, their husband or whatever and is talking about how we should go to war and we should do this and we should kill the terrorists and all these kind of things. Try and tone police those people and see what happens. Um, it, it's a matter of saying that black people are not allowed the same amount of pain. Black people are not allowed to have anger. Black people are not allowed to even think about violence as a tool to uh, releasing themselves for oppression. It's not allowed. It's not on the table. And so tone policing is about saying these tools are not for you. They are for us only. Absolutely. Hmm. Um, for me, like the thing that's been really interesting to watch this week has been, like I said, just the, the change in timber and tone and reaction of um, the black folks that I interact with. And it's, been on one hand infuriating because it sucks that we even have to deal with this bullshit but it's been really empowering for me to, to see and read and listen to how people have been reacting and um you know you know propelling um this movement forward into a different space for me which is one where we are standing in our power and not really allowing um our our resolve and our um, narrative to be dissuaded or to be moved um, to talk about shit that doesn't matter to us anymore um, and getting caught in these, you know, troll concern, um, you know, bullshit traps to, to explain away things that don't even need to be addressed, much less explained to people. Um, and also there's a, a level of, you know, just emotional um, development in that, which is, you know, finding this balance of, you know, honoring the anger that we justifiably feel 
um, and not being swallowed by it. Because when you hold it in, it's mm-hmm. bad. It's really bad for you as a person, um, as, for us as a society, as a, for us as a people. Um, and so it's important to acknowledge those feelings and to allow them to, to come out and, 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 and be strong in that. And that's what I heard when Nikki said, Miley, what's good? I was like, yeah, bitch, what the fuck is good? What the <laughs> fuck is your problem? Like, for real, can I live? Can she have a statement and just make it about what she wants to talk about without you? you making it about you for once and and so i'm happy to see those things happening and hopefully um these white folks will get the fucking picture at some point because um it ain't gonna get any easier for them moving forward because i don't see any of us being uh comfortable taking the shit we used to take any longer um as you so eloquently said absurdist words earlier that there's just shit that you used to let slide and you're like nah not not anymore (laughs) not really gonna let that go um uh, so first of all thank you so much for coming on the show it's such an awesome conversation i'm so glad you're available tell everyone where they can find you because honestly like i should just i I always want to storify every tweet that you have because you go on these like awesome threads and they're so just amazing and also, I love when you just go at somebody who's an idiot, and it's my favorite thing <laughs> on Twitter. I um, kind of let off steam. It's the best because they just they end up in a pool of stupidity, and I love it. Uh, so tell everyone where they can find you and follow you and everything. So you can find me at, at Absurdist Words on Twitter, or you can find me at Absurdist Words on Tumblr. Um, so those are my, my two main places where you can get to me, and um, I'm always there, so come and talk. Awesome. And I'm going to include uh, direct links to both your FAQ part one and part two in the show notes. So if anybody wants to directly take a look at those, we'll have direct links to that and also to your Tumblr and um, your Twitter feed. You can find Ricky sometimes on Twitter at AUADOTorg, uh, on Facebook quite a bit, facebook.com backslash AUA movement, and on um, the Amer- Americans United Again website, AUA movement. Dot org. You can find me um, on Twitter at Leslie Mac, M-A-C, and you can find uh, our show uh, along with tools and resources for the Movement for Black Lives at FergusonResponse.org. And if you're looking for actions in your area or are planning any, you can go to FergusonResponse.tumblr.com. Uh, Ricky, it's always a pleasure. Glad we're back yes. in the saddle. Yes. Good show. Happy that, that we were able to, to get it done this week. And uh, we'll talk to you, everybody, next time. Thank you.